couple of weeks ago, we read part of Matthew's gospel together. If you recall, sort of a quilt of stories. Jesus showed mercy to Matthew, a tax collector and functionary of the Roman government, by calling Matthew to be a disciple. Then he healed a woman and raised a little girl from the dead, offering mercy to people others literally would not touch. This morning, we're going to pick up with the next section of Matthew's gospel as Jesus commissions the 12 disciples for active service. This is a sending text. Here, Jesus changes the role of the disciples. To this point, they have been followers. That's what the word disciple means, follower. But now Jesus calls them apostles. The only time in Matthew's gospel he uses that word. And the word apostle means one who is sent. The 12 are now being sent to participate in ministry along with their Lord. One more word about the timing of this passage. It comes to us at a time in the church year called ordinary time. Really exciting, ordinary time. This is not the preparation and anticipation of Advent. It isn't the repentance and thoughtfulness of Lent. It isn't the celebratory spirit of Easter. This is a long stretch in the middle. You'll see lots of green stoles and pyramids here for a while. We're between high holy days. This is a time when we're less in celebratory mode and more in the day-to-day of faithful living. So this sending comes in a time when we need to hear a commission to a life of faith. Now we turn to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 10, 14. Hear God's word. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, so give without payment. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, 
for laborers deserve their food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who in it is worthy and stay there until you leave. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I was thinking about this message of sending, I was struck by what this experience must have been like for those first 12 disciples turned apostles. What a moment to have been along for the ride with a miracle working prophet and then to be given authority to go out to love a whole lot of people and a whole lot of pain. I did a little crowdsourcing from my own family. We brainstormed about times in our lives when we were learning something new and we had listened to a teacher or watched as someone who was experienced and gifted showed us how to do something, and then we tried it. And discovered, of course, that the thing that looked so effortless and natural from a master was incredibly hard to replicate. A few examples. We watched every single episode of the Great British Baking Show during the pandemic. And we thought it would be easy to make macarons from scratch. It is not. It took us most of an entire day and every piece of baking equipment we own. Another, we are a fishing family. We were lucky enough to spend last week in the North Carolina mountains and we fished every single day. At some point, each Lamont has watched a master fly fisherman cast. And that fly fisherman never gets snagged in a tree or on a stick in the water, seeming to place just the right fly into just the right spot. It's always behind a rock where there's just a little bit of foam and giant trout are lingering, hiding, waiting behind the rock. And in what feels like seconds, the fisherman has pulled in a huge rainbow who seems to swim agreeably right into the net and then smile for a photo. (laughs) It looks beautiful, seamless, until the first time you take up a fly rod and promptly discover that that is the work of years of practice. Another for our family is learning to drive. (laughs) James Lamont, you're an excellent driver. You can watch others drive for years, but when you get behind the wheel, you find out just how many things you have to remember all at once when you drive, especially if you learn in Atlanta. And Joel and I remembered the experience of taking prenatal classes as expectant parents. We watched as someone showed us how to swaddle, how to hold a baby to feed, and then told us nonchalantly how easy it would be to set up a sleep schedule. (laughs) That was not true. (laughs) 
But the day, of course, came when a nurse handed us our own precious newborns and said, your turn. Now you do it. You keep this little one fed and swaddled and clean and alive, and most important, well-loved. Surely the disciples felt something of that trepidation and humility, that exhilaration and resolve as Jesus brought them into the work of the gospel. Jesus had been busy. Matthew writes that he was going about cities and villages teaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. That kind of work draws a lot of attention. We saw two weeks ago how hurting people gathered wherever Jesus went. They followed him and waited for him. They reached out to touch his tunic, hoping to be healed. Jesus saw those crowds, and Matthew writes that he had compassion for them. The word here, translated as compassion, has actually a physical aspect to it. It means that your guts actually churn. You feel something in your body. Your stomach lurches, or your heart races, or you get a lump in your throat that tells you you're seeing another person's pain. You're actually feeling it. That's what happens to Jesus in this text. His heart turns toward this crowd of people because they were harassed and helpless. We don't know how many people he saw in that moment, but anytime the Gospels use this notion that there's a crowd, it's meant to tell us that it was a lot of people. So here we see the crush of human pain. There's so much need. So many people are hurting and lost. So many people long to be seen and treated with compassion. Our Lord uses the image of a harvest to capture the moment. He tells his followers that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In other words, there are countless people in need of compassion and too few people ready to offer it. Now, a harvest is good if it's plentiful. Farmers hope for a bountiful crop, but a plentiful harvest is also urgent. It has to be picked or gathered in at just the right time or the food will be lost. So it is with human need. It is urgent. If we look back in the Gospels, we get a glimpse of all the different kinds of need Jesus saw in the crowds that followed him. He's seen everything. He's seen material poverty, physical illness, mental illness, social alienation, loneliness, and anxiety. And we remember that he has stepped over every boundary line and place around him, touching people who were unclean, breaking the rules of the Roman government, seating people at his own table who were unsavory. He has healed a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, given sight to blind men, raised a little girl from the dead. He brought lackeys for the Romans into his own inner circle. He helped a mute and deaf man speak. He went out to the margins and found the people who made everyone uncomfortable and invited them to come right through the gates into the community. 
Everywhere he goes, he sees need. And with every person he meets, he responds with compassion. When he sees this crowd and is moved, physically moved by their need, he calls the disciples into service. Now, as I said, to this point, they have followed. They've been with him. They've heard him preach and teach. They've been surprised as he pays attention to people others ignore. He touched the unclean. They watched as he healed and welcomed and broke the boundary lines of the day. And now the rubber meets the road for them because he turns to them and says, now you do it. Go. And as you go, proclaim the good news that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus sends them out into this bountiful and urgent harvest of people in need, and he gives them authority. So now they have to see the people who make everyone uncomfortable and provide for people who want and love those others detest and be present during suffering. The stakes are a lot higher than learning to bake or cast with a fly rod. So surely the disciples had something of that same reality checking experience we've all shared. Hang on a minute there, Lord. Now we are supposed to do this? We are the laborers responsible for this harvest? The compassion of Jesus Christ is a tall order for mere disciples, for those 12 and for us hearing the same commission. Jesus made miracles look easy. He healed with just a touch or a word, and we cannot replicate those miracles. In fact, we would probably prefer not to be asked to try. We prefer to avoid need and pain. We don't actually like to see the crowd because it is uncomfortable to have our guts turn and our hearts race. Lumps in throats hurt. But as our friend Tom Long writes about this passage, the point is not that Jesus used to do these mighty deeds, and now that he's gone, we're supposed to try to imitate him and do them too. Our perceptions of our own weakness are accurate. We cannot walk through a morgue and raise the dead, or into an infusion room and heal cancer patients, or touch someone who's suffering and free them of depression and anxiety. But as Christian people, we believe that the risen Christ is still at work in each of those places. And this text sends the church, it sends people of faith to join in our Lord's harvest of compassion. A few weeks ago, a colleague sent around an article that was written by a guy who loves religion and he loves to study data. So he was studying membership trends in mainline Protestant denominations in our country. And in the article, he tries to demonstrate how quickly some denominations might actually die out. Very happy article. Now, he acknowledges up front that his conclusions are incomplete because he could only study denominations who were transparent with their data. 
He's not Presbyterian, but we Presbyterians are transparent with our data, so he uses us as his example of how fast the church will die. <laughs> Lucky us. <clears throat> he looked at the membership trends in our denomination for the last 40 years since the Northern and Southern churches reunified in 1983, and he came up with an annualized rate of decline. He then applied that rate and projected it out to identify the year when the Presbyterian Church will die out. If, that is, a calculated rate of decline were steady year over year, and if no other factors intervened, those are big ifs. No spoilers here, I won't tell you what year he names. I don't really want you to know. <laughs> I raise this article not because I think he's right, but because it raises so many questions about what we do. What are we gonna do about this? How will we save the church from death? How will we fight this phantom, this constant threat of decline? How will we win the membership race? How can we beat the pandemic trends and bring everybody back and raise more money? How will we keep up with technology and remain relevant in the world when people are more and more polarized, more and more trained to consume faith rather than live it, more and more torn by the competing demands of a relentlessly fast culture? Those aren't necessarily wrong questions for us, but I raise this article because those questions are not the heart of our commission from God. And this article perfectly captures the fear mentality that tears at us. It puts our faith on the defensive and draws our attention toward preserving structures. It distracts us from the simple task to which we are still sent, and that is compassion. Jesus saw the crowd and was moved with compassion. He saw the plentiful need around him. He knew that human need was as urgent as crops in the field or grapes on the vine in the hot sun. Jesus saw material poverty, physical illness, mental illness, social alienation, loneliness, and anxiety. And friends, we do too. You might be thinking of it now, the material poverty that holds our neighbors mere minutes from here, the pain of friends and loved ones battling illnesses of all kinds, the suffering of anxiety and isolation, the pandemic of young people struggling to feel that they belong anywhere, seeking solace in technology and false relationships on the internet. We have all seen the quick anger that tears at our community, the pain of shame that keeps us apart. The crowds in need of love are with us. The crowds in need of love include us. Jesus called his followers to join him in the work of seeing all of that need, not avoiding it, not preserving our comfort, but walking toward it with love. And that is still our commission. There is still a crowd of people who need God's love. 
whatever may happen to denominations and organizations and membership trends and buildings and budgets, the future of faith is assured so long as there are people longing for compassion. Our Lord's story is not one of decline. It is one of bounty. And he tells us that the time is now. The harvest is plenty and the laborers are few. We don't have to perform miracles to bring this harvest in. We have only to love. May it be so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.